That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear, with an emphasis on empowering you, me, and we the people to an activist response. My name is Libby Halevi, and I produce and host this podcast because I was one mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened. I know that with 104 nuclear reactors all over the U.S., plus radioactive sites and reactors around the world, whether you can hear those sirens or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Today is Tuesday, February 7, 2012, day 337 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th of 2011, and here is the latest nuclear news. Starting off in Japan, uh, there has been rising temperature in nuclear reactor number two at Fukushima, and uh, what this points to is the possibility of an accidental chain reaction known as recriticality. Uh, the temperatures rose repeatedly in the last week, and TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, has now injected boric acid into the reactor in an attempt to cool it down. Uh, the reading at its peak on February 6th, which was Monday, was at 72.2 degrees Celsius, which is the same as just under 170 degrees uh, in Fahrenheit. Uh, the temperature has since dropped down about uh, a dozen degrees in Fahrenheit, so the temperature has come down. It's, the situation is still being monitored. Meanwhile, uh, Tetsuo Ito, who is the head of the Atomic Energy Research Incident in Kinki University in western Japan, said, quote, it was too early to say the plant is safe last December when TEPCO declared a cold shutdown, even though nobody is sure about the location of the melted fuel. A similar incident will probably occur soon. We certainly hope not. Also, TEPCO has announced that to prevent further contamination of the sea, as occurred with an unplanned release of radioactive water last December, they are going to remove about 1,000 kinds of radioactive material from the water at the crippled Fukushima number 1 nuclear power plant. This was uh, according to spokespeople on January 28th. The question being, what are these 1,000 kinds of radioactive materials and why have we not heard about all of those before? The utility will start installing equipment in March for the removal of the radioactive materials, including not only cesium, but also strontium, cobalt, and manganese, sources said. TEPCO is currently purifying contaminated water by using two kinds of devices in which zeolite, a mineral, absorbs cesium. However, those devices cannot remove other radioactive materials such as strontium. In December, contaminated water containing strontium with a concentration level one million times higher than the government safety standard leaked into the sea. Cesium had been removed, but not the strontium or any of the other contaminants. Initially, TEPCO considered discharging the water into the sea after purifying it, but faced strong opposition from central and local governments to the plan. The means of disposing the purified water after it has gone through this process has yet to be decided. Here in the United States, the star of the show has been San Onofre. In the last week, there have been three different aspects of the plant that need to be addressed. In the first, last Tuesday, it was discovered that there was a leak in reactor number three. 
uh, Edison shut down, Southern California Edison shut down Unit 3 on Tuesday, saying it, it's expected that one of the tubes had burst. Uh, the plant has been on, offline ever since. According to uh, Southern California Edison spokesman Gil Anderson, we believe we're dealing with a single small tube leak, and we know, we'll know more as the tests are done. Uh, and, uh, it, the gas actually escaped from a vent atop the re reactor's turbine building, according to another spokesperson for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, um, Mr. Drix. Now, we did receive at Nuclear Hot Seat an email on Sunday from Sean Bonner of SafeCast. SafeCast is a global sensor network for collecting and sharing radiation measurements that empower people with data about their environment. He reported that uh, SafeCaster Mike was nearby with one of the pieces of equipment they have, the B. Geige, and immediately drove over to measure the situation. From his readings, they have not yet detected any elevated levels on the public roads closest to the plant. So they are still planning to remeasure the area soon and keep an eye on it. But for the moment, that was very good news. That was last Sunday. Now, continuing with the story of San Onofre, on Thursday, it was discovered that uh, the, or the uh, NRC announced that more than 800 tubes in a second reactor were wearing and thinning, even though these tubes have been replaced less than two years ago. The unusual wear was found on hundreds of tubes that carry radioactive water to the Unit 2 at San Onofre, raising questions about the integrity of equipment the company installed in a multi-million dollar makeover in 2009. According to NRC spokesman Victor Drix, here's his first name, the amount of wear that we are seeing on these tubes is unusual for a new steam generator. If you have that kind of thinning anywhere along the length of the tubes, you have a problem because it degrades the integrity of the tubes, which can contribute to leaks. Uh, and in a clever and planted piece, cleverly planted piece of disinformation uh, to seed a topic that is completely off topic, uh, PG&E said that there was no indication the heavy tubing wear was related to terrorism. Now, some more pertinent comments were made by retired NRC engineer and researcher Joram Hopenfeld. He said, I've never heard of anything like that over so short a period of time. Usually the concern is in older steam generators when they have cracks all over the place. The safety implications could be very, very serious. Um, I interviewed James Chambers, who is uh, a licensed nuclear reactor operator, uh, who worked at San Onofre for more than 25 years, and uh, this was on a special report on Saturday. But he said that uh, much the same as uh, Joram Hopenfeld said, this is a very dangerous situation and not to be taken lightly because it could lead to many more problems in the years to come. Uh, that podcast is available um, at nuclearhotseat.com. In a seemingly unrelated issue, uh, a nuclear worker on Friday fell into the refueling pond at San Onofre where he was trying to retrieve a dropped flashlight. When we spoke with James Chambers about that, he said nothing should be dropped into those those pools because they feed water into the reactor. It is the equivalent of putting sand or sugar into a gas tank and has the potential, if anything gets in there, to really jam the system up. Um, so those are three separate problems at San Onofre in less than a week. 
Now, Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear, during an interview with Tom Hartman on RT.com, said about San Onofre and the rupture that had happened in the tubing. If you have a domino effect, a cascade of tube ruptures, there's thousands of these tubes in these steam generators. You could have a loss of coolant accident in the core, which could lead to a meltdown, which could lead to China syndrome, burn-through containment, and a catastrophic radioactivity release. These nukes are getting old and dangerous. We are in the breakdown phase of, nuclear po- of the nuclear power in this country. We'll have more um, news from the United States and around the world about what's going on in, uh, from the nuclear aspect. But right now, I'm very pleased with our long-delayed interview. We had some tech problems last time we tried to get her in here. And I'm delighted today that Mary Olson uh, is here to be interviewed on Nuclear Hot Seat. She's the director of the Southeast Office of Nuclear Information and Resource Services, Service, NEARS. And she's been with NEARS for over 20 years. In her current position, she works with grassroots activists and organizations on nuclear issues throughout the region from her office in Asheville, North Carolina. Mary, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. So glad to be here. Wonderful to have you. So give us just a picture of some of the things that you have been um, uh, dealing with for NEARS. I realize this could be a three-hour lecture, but just you know, pick a few points and uh, we'll move into some of the other topics. Well, I I think it's important to state that I moved to the southeast uh, in 1999, primarily for personal reasons, but also I was in and out of the region because it was the only place where a new nuclear facility of the commercial variety was being built, which at that point was a plutonium fuel factory. And then, what, five years later, we're faced with the bulk of the new proposed nuclear power plants, the first in 37 years. Of the 28 or 9 that are still pending before the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, I say still because there are flies dropping, thank goodness. A number of proposals are pretty much down for the count at this point. But the the majority of them are uh, projected and planned for the southeastern states. And so the fact that I moved here in 99 and started working a network throughout this southeastern region uh, has been called prescient by both the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and my boss. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, because one of the few things that we have uh, had for ourselves is our own infrastructure of activists who are aware and educated and prepped to be able to respond, and it sounds like that's what you've been putting together. Well, they were all here. The Southeast has been very active on these issues, just as every other region has been the entire nuclear era. I don't like to give the word age to something that's going to pass soon. Um, But, you know, any region can be fractured and need a little bit of assistance in beginning to get the communication going, the coordination going, and then the strategic action going. And I am very pleased and proud to report something that really has not been reported, which is that every single new proposed reactor has been challenged, either with legal counsel or pro se, which means an individual standing up and under the Atomic Energy Act uh, having the authority to intervene in a nuclear license. And it's a very exciting thing to do, and a lot of people have really cut their teeth on the process and are learning a lot. And we've you know we figured we were going to lose not necessarily on the reactor as a whole but in terms of these licensing steps so why spend a lot of money on it and a lot of folks have stepped up and learned how to do pro se intervention it's been very exciting 
And is that a training uh, that NEARS can provide for additional in, in, individuals who want to get involved? Absolutely. We have a long set of experience, and I want to brag on Michael Marriott, who is the executive director, is uh, not quite put the Calvert Cliffs proposal to uh, its final nail in the coffin, but it's definitely in the coffin, and that's thanks to his real expertise in figuring out what matters, and in this case, it's the question of whether a foreign corporation can own the controlling share of a nuclear activity in the United States, and the Atomic Energy Act says no, and Michael has been on that like one of those dogs that just won't let off a bone, and <laughs> Riva and Electricity de France have their back to the wall, and we'll just have to see what happens yet because the proceeding isn't over, but it looks like uh, very likely um, we've got the reactor closest to Washington, D.C. off the list. The proposed new one is what I'm talking about. This is all fabulous information. Now, we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of Fukushima, and I know that there has been uh, a lot of talk online and uh, through the community to create events all over the place. From your perspective at NEARS, which is national and possibly one of the best perspectives out there, what do you see happening within the anti-nuclear movement as that date approaches? Well, I think it's going to be a spectrum. I think that in some communities, five people holding signs is a noteworthy moment, and it may be something as small as a vigil in a town square like that. But we also have um, Waynesboro, Georgia, which is where the proposed Vogel reactors are. And unfortunately, they have garnered over $8 billion worth of federal money, and they are the front-running um, reactor site, it's very likely that they will be awarded an, a license to new reactors in Georgia, a license this week from the top dogs at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And so the local community, this is a, a county in Georgia that has the highest percentage African American, one of the lowest income counties in the entire state of Georgia. Um, they are calling for people to come, and I think people across the region will be gathering, and I'm, I'm sincerely hoping that we will see, you know, a real, uh, it's hard to say a protest because it's such a sad and, and solemn day. So many people died in the tsunami in Japan. So many people are out of their homes because of the nuclear catastrophe in Japan. The global impacts are still untold because nobody's adequately monitoring them. Um you know, I, I I don't know whether we will call it a rally, a protest, a vigil, um, but in any case, I think it will be a large gathering. Another place that there will likely be a large gathering is in Vermont, where the state has said the reactor shall end its operations at the end of its 40-year license. And uh, there's been a big tussle, and unfortunately, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission went ahead and awarded a 20-year extension, but did say that it would not... Um, preempt the state's authority on that. So now there's a legal proceeding going on where the owner of the reactor is challenging the state's law. But I think a lot of people will be turning out. I think, uh, as I say, it's going to be a spectrum between hundreds of people in one place to small numbers of people other places. Knowing that this event uh, has the potential to certainly put the nuclear issue in front of people through the media, what could we do as activists 
beyond March 11th to really build on that visibility and and make a louder noise or a deeper impact on uh, the thinking in this country? Well, you know, I mean, I think that there, there's multiple layers in your question, and I'm going to start with the, the how do you make something bigger. And I think that if you recall the years of the anti-war protests of Vietnam, the very simple appropriation of the two fingers held in the air that our president at that time was using for victory, and everybody else turned it into no, peace. And the, the hand held with the two fingers up, everybody knew that meant peace. So that kind of simple coordination, I'm not sure that what people are doing in France is yet the iconic Thing, but we might consider adopting what the French mobilization in marking the Fukushima accident anniversary this year is to make human chains. They're going to be holding hands over long distances across France, um, saying human chains, not nuclear chains. And so I don't know. I'm not sure that that's iconic enough to, to get there, but if we could finally find something that visually communicated and that we were all doing in a coordinated way, if not on the same day or the same time, then in the same kinds of places, like in front of utility offices or in front of state legislatures or in front of nuclear power plants or, you know, I mean, where you do these things also matters in terms of conveying message. But I do think that there's potential to really capture a, a wave here. And I've been sad that it's taken a full year for that to develop, but it's not too late. And I hope that we will seriously engage with each other on how do we visibly show peaceful but purposeful resistance. That's a good piece to chew on. And uh, I do know that we've talked about having a human chain uh, in conjunction with San Onofre down here in Southern California. Uh, and I didn't know that that was based on the French model. Now, you... Sortir du nucléaire, and I want to say that again, sortir du nucléaire. You get all this propaganda about France and how wonderful their wine is and how wonderful their nuclear power is and the officials get sent on junkets. But you never hear that one of the largest anti-nuclear resistance movements in the whole world is in France. And they are our brothers and sisters, and they are known as Sortier du Nucléaire. So. And now we'll know how to find them. So in your work, you have uh, had a special focus on the issues of radioactivity, uh, most specifically as they affect women and girls. Uh, could you talk a little bit about this and um, fill us in on your perspective? Well, actually, it's the Fukushima, Fukushima accident itself that um, caused me uh, to have to run something down. And by that I mean dig and dig and dig and look for a source. Because I'm a public speaker and several times in the last couple of years, women have raised their hands and asked me about radiation being more harmful to women. And I didn't dismiss it, but I honestly had never been trained to have this as a scientifically based piece of information. I hadn't you know, I've sat at the knees of the great uh, John Goffman, the great Alice Stewart, the great Rosalie Bertel, the great Helen Caldicott. I mean, there's a lot of people I have learned from all these years, and this just was not something that I had heard. 
and and it started grinding at me. And then the founder of Susan Komen for the Cure Foundation put a letter in the New York Times about her concern about the health of women in Japan in the wake of the Fukushima accident. And my boss wanted me to write a letter to her. And I said, you know, I really can't write that letter until I get to the bottom of this. And I couldn't find anything about women being harmed more. Yes, pregnant women, the embryo, the fetus, but that's not the woman. That's the additional activity in her body and and the soon-to-be-born child. But um, it it was a big mystery. So finally I called Dr. Rosalie Bertel, who's now in her 80s and one of the icons of radiation research of the, ni- of the 1900s, the 20th century, her book, No Immediate Danger, is supposed to have a question mark on the end, um, but it's one of the primers for me in my my career. And Rosalie said, yes, this is true. And I said, but Rosalie, I need backing for it. Where is it? And she directed me one place that was out of print, and so I called her back, and she said, well, it's not, they don't say it in the National Academy of Sciences report that's called The Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation, and then the most recent in the series of what are known as BEIR, B-E-I-R, Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation Reports. The most recent is number seven. She said, look at number seven, but you're going to have to look at the numbers. And so I went through the entire report, and throughout the numbers show that women have a far greater incidence of cancer when compared to men at the same dose level and also a far greater fatality, cancer fatality from the same dose of radiation. Is there a reason that you have been able to ascertain for that? Well, this is, I tell the young people I speak to, it's their generation's job to to further the research and answer that question. We've known for a long time. I could have instantly validated somebody asking me a question when I was speaking about children. And for children, there's really two very easy-to-see reasons, one being that their bodies are smaller, so the same amount of radiation energy is a larger dose to their smaller body. And secondly, they are growing, and so their cells are dividing. And since the impact of radiation is fundamentally on our cells, not on our arm or our leg, unless it's extraordinarily high radiation, like some of the workers at Fukushima or the liquidators at Chernobyl, yeah, they had large body areas burned and impacted by radioactivity. But these smaller doses are impacting our cells. And so that children are growing and their cells are dividing is one of the reasons that they are disproportionately impacted because the DNA can be damaged much more easily when the cells are dividing. So we can easily say on two very solid grounds why children have a so much higher uh, danger from radiation. Now, yes, as a whole group, on average, women's bodies are a little bit smaller So there's that. And I asked Rosalie what her theory is. And this is just a theory because there hasn't been research to validate this. But And the National Academy of Sciences report doesn't even mention the disproportionate impact. It's in their numbers, but they don't even discuss it at all, let alone offer a reason. But Rosalie's suggestion is that reproductive tissue is more radiosensitive. And the percentage of reproductive tissue in a female body is higher than in a male body. So that's, that was her sense, and I think that very likely there may be some other metabolic issues that are different between men and women, 
that could also make a difference. But I, I have to emphasize that worldwide, in aggregate, women get less cancer than men. It can be just a little bit less, and in some countries up to almost 40% less. So the fact that radiation is causing a 50% more is an even more potent um, situation than you know, assuming that they would be the same. Mm. Are there any steps that you recommend or that you've come across for uh, women and girls, as well as men and boys, to take to protect themselves as the radiation exposure seems to increase every year? Yeah, um, I wrote a piece just after the Fukushima accident about steps that are easy to take to reduce our risk. Um, this piece is primarily focused on fallout from uh, the radioactive disaster in Japan, which comes to us primarily as rain, although there's also evidence that it's simply air masses, and now the water um, currents are bringing radioactive debris, so it's not only rain. But when it comes to rain, there's simple things we can do, and if you live near a reactor, you're getting radioactive rain as also, so it's not all from Japan. There's plenty of radioactive rain that's here in the United States. And we grow our own here. So step one, if don't flip, but if you get wet, as soon as you can, go home, put your clothes in the wash, take a shower. If you have many days of rain, consider leaving your rain gear and your shoes at the door so that um, you're not tracking it all the way into your house. Always wash your hands before you eat. And, you know, there's a lot of controversy about food and how do we know and basically you can't know but if you're in a period of time or a place where you think that there's been radioactive fallout you might consider reducing and or eliminating the dairy in your diet it doesn't have to be forever but for a period of time that's recommended um, and also eating large fish is also a bad idea because it can concentrate both of those things concentrate the radioactivity over what is present because the cow eats the grass, the grass gets concentrated in the cow and gets even more concentrated in the milk, and then if you have cheese, say, or, you know, it's even more concentrated. Mm. So uh, same with fish. Little fish have a lower concentration than the big fish that's eaten many little and medium-sized fish. Um, so that's that's very simple things, but if we do those simple things, we actually do lower our risk. Every time I do nuclear hot seat, I always try to include some either self-protection information or uh, uh, nutritional things people can do just to boost their resistance to cancer, to build their immune systems, and also to do the uh, uh, the kind of hygienic things that you just suggested with uh, leaving clothes outside or washing the hands. What I'd like to do now is... I'd like to include, if I could... Sure is to always remind people that our bodies do have repair mechanisms. And so, you know, it's possible to get cancer and die from an extremely small dose of radiation, but it doesn't happen very often because most of the time our bodies repair those little bits of damage and there's no problem at all. So it's a numbers game. And there will be impacts from Fukushima in the U.S. population, but they will be... Um, per million, you know, per 100,000, 
uh, people. It will not be X many per hundred. And it's also going to be statistical as opposed to understanding that the person across the street got cancer because of Fukushima as opposed to some other environmental or hereditary problem that they might have. Right, and if you live anywhere near a reactor, prove to me that it was Fukushima instead of your local one. It's far more likely that it's the routine emissions from the local one. Well, what I'd like to do now is if there's anybody on the line who has a question uh, for my guest, Mary Olson of NEARS, the time to ask it would be now. I know a few people contacted me and said that they wanted to be on the call. This is where everybody gets nice and shy about it. Well, Mary, what can we do to support you, to support NEARS, to uh, be able to continue this superb work that you are providing on our behalf? Well, it, it really helps us to have members, and members are defined as somebody who gave a dollar or more, so it doesn't necessarily mean that everybody can be a large donor and be a supporter that way. But any amount of contribution um, makes somebody a member. And our website is www.nirs.org. And the reason this matters, even if somebody is giving a dollar a year, is that um, our ongoing support comes from a handful of incredibly wonderful and happen to be wealthy people, and they see that our membership is growing, and they feel more happy to continue giving to support the larger priced items like salaries and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. We do get some grant money, and we certainly get a lot of you know $25 donations, and they add up. So it's not like we exist totally on these few individuals. But they do look at things like how many new members do we have, and it matters. And so... That would be very helpful for people who are listening to this to decide to join yours. That's a wonderful piece of information that I will pass along. If you have any closing thought that you would like to share with us, uh, I realize that you, is there any one of a number of topics you can go on at length, but if you were to leave us with a single thought, what would that be? Think about how you can support the children and mothers in Japan. Um, to be opened with the fact that she's part of the diaspora of Three Mile Island. And Fukushima is resulting in a similar uh, dispersion of people across large areas. Um, that's a tragic and heartbreaking thing for people to give up their homes, but even more tragic and even more heartbreaking are the people who are stuck with no government support, with no uh, assistance to terminate employment or uh, relocate, and yet they're living in zones where their children are being expected to be exposed to radiation levels that are as high as nuclear workers in the United States, two REMS a year, and that is only the hours that they are in school. So any other time in their day at home, sleeping in their beds, walking to school, all those additional exposures are on top of that, and I consider this to be absolutely so outrageous that the world is, you know, we're responding to people being shot in, in certain countries all the time, which is appropriate. We should respond. But these children are basically, you know, the Native American people who mined the uranium without being told what it was, coined the phrase, invisible bullets. Mm -hmm. These children in Japan are suffering invisible bullets 
and they need an outcry from around the world to insist that their government and others support them in being relocated because it's just heartbreaking to, for me to think of of this. And I can tell you that in the age group of toddlers, girls are twice as vulnerable to boys. I said it earlier that women have 50% more cancer from a given radiation exposure compared to men. Men get cancer. Men die. This is not about it being safe for men. It's just that much worse for women. Well, in the zero to five age group, it is 100% more risk Mm -hmm. for girls. And I think we need to start really taking this to heart and speaking about it and speaking out about it and you know, being the kind of raging granny and great raging grandpa and and powerful young people and everybody else to stand up and say this isn't good enough. We we need to do better for those people. Mary, thank you so much for sharing your your not only information but your compassion, your heart, and um, the level of care that you bring to every aspect of this issue. Uh, we're lucky to have you on our side. You're welcome. And I invite you to stay on the podcast. Uh, We have about 10 minutes and then we'll be done. Uh, My guest today was uh, Mary Olson, who is director of the Southeast Office of NEARS. NEARS NEARS.org. Let's all go and send them uh, however small an amount of money so that their membership roles can swell to uh, gigantic numbers. (laughs) And now on to the nuclear news. Um, In Russia... A fire broke out on Sunday at a Moscow nuclear research center that houses a non-operational 60-year-old atomic reactor. Just because it's non-operational does not mean that there was no radiation to be leaked there. The environmental group Greenpeace Russia expressed serious concern about the incident. The fire was in a basement at the Institute of Theoretical and Experimental Physics in southwest Moscow. Uh, Gray smoke rose above the institution and an acrid smell filled the air. In France, where there is a large and heretofore not fully uh, appreciated anti-nuclear movement taking place, uh, France's Nuclear Safety Authority, ASN, said on Monday it had identified a problem with water pipes at one of EDF's nuclear plants. As a result, they rated it a level two event out of a maximum seven on the international nuclear event scale. Level two ratings occur relatively rarely, uh, the watchdog said there was no impact on plant workers or the environment from the event, but uh, they're still investigating to find out the nature of the problem and what can be done to rectify it. In New Zealand, a radiation cloud was detected on January 29th over Dunedin. Uh, this was a high-level radiation cloud that visual observation saw peak at 1.89 uh, millisieverts per hour. Um, Dunedin is on the South Island of New Zealand in what is considered to be one of the safest places on the planet if a nuclear disaster like Fukushima happened. So nobody knows what's going on or the source. If we get more information, we will share it. Here in the U.S., North Anna is again in the news with yet another aftershock near Mineral in Louisa County. Uh, This prompted operators at North Anna to declare an unusual event on Monday, January 30th. And uh, this was from a magnitude 3.2 aftershock from the August 23rd earthquake. The reactors have since been placed back online. 
Here in the U.S., uh, Hanford officials in Hanford, Washington, have settled on a plan to clean up what may be the most highly radioactive spill at the nuclear reservation. 89 sieverts per hour was measured in soil near the Columbia River in Washington State in the contaminated soil. And it's about 1,000 feet from the Columbia River. Uh, direct exposure for even a few minutes to this level of radiation would be fatal, according to Washington Closure. In the 80s, cesium and strontium spilled inside a hot cell, according to a 1993 report that referenced the spill. With the worst contamination, excuse me, the worst contamination down to five or six feet deep. There is no evidence that the contamination has reached the groundwater, which is about 54 feet below ground level there and 42 feet below the bottom of the hot cell. Yet there's no way to tell whether any has, has been washed into the river. And, of course, this is the most radioactive site in the United States. In Vermont, fish taken from a lake in the northern part of that state had similar levels of strontium-90 and cesium-137 as fish taken from the Connecticut River near Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Plant in Vernon. The fish, which were taken from Lake Carmi, were smallmouth bass, and they were taken from the lake by Vermont Fish and Wildlife Fisheries personnel who were doing the testing. Cesium was found in both edible and inedible portions of the bass, Strontium was found only in the inedible portions, which include the bones, head, fins, and scales, not unlike where strontium collects in a human body in uh, the teeth and in the bones. Researchers around Fukushima Daiichi in Japan have said that bird populations there have begun to dwindle in what may be a chilling harbinger of the impact of radioactive fallout on local life. Researchers from Japan, the U.S., and Denmark said their analysis of 14 species of birds common to Fukushima and also common to Chernobyl, the Ukrainian city which suffered a similar nuclear meltdown, showed the effect on abundance is worse in the Japanese disaster zone. The study, uh, published in the Journal of Environmental Pollution just this week, suggests that its findings demonstrate, quote, an immediate negative consequence of radiation for birds during the main breeding season of March to July, with the accident having taken place on March 11th. Two of the authors study, two of the study's authors have spent recent years working in the irradiated area around the Chernobyl single reactor plant. Timothy Mousseau and Anders Pop Moller say their research uncovered major negative effects among the bird population, including reductions in longevity and in male fertility and with birds having smaller brains. Many species show dramatically elevated DNA mutation rates, developmental abnormalities, and extinctions, they add, while insect life has been significantly reduced. Now, as I said, I always like to include some holistic information for us to be able to maintain our health. And this week it comes from a site called Renegade Health, which is involved with uh, nutrition and various ways that we can boost our bodies to be able to throw off the effects of radiation, uh, much like Mary Olson was talking about before. In a report they just filed, uh, they said that the biological effects of low levels of radiation exposure are so small that they are undetectable. However, too much radiation affects living cells. The body has repair mechanisms to fix any damage induced by radiation, possibly resulting in three outcomes. One, injured or damaged cells repair themselves, resulting in no residual damage. 
Two, cells die much like millions of body cells do every day and are replaced through normal biological processes. Or, number three, cells incorrectly repair themselves, resulting in a biophysical change which can lead to cancer. Now, the focus of this article was on exposure to medical radiation, which just because it's in a medical situation does not mean that it is harmless. Uh, the report says that all radiation exposure carries increased risk of cancer, and the larger the amount, the greater the risk. Therefore, only get medical radiation procedures when there is a significant problem to be solved, like if a cancer has spread to your liver or you have a brain tumor causing pounding headaches. Don't get a whole body CAT scan just to have a trendy health workup, especially if you're a healthy person. Do not get repeated x-rays of your entire spine just to measure alignment. If necessary, only get an x-ray of the affected part being as specific as practically possible. Always ask if there are alternative tests like ultrasound that might be just as good but don't require radiation. Final thoughts for this day. We are all capable of making a change, so go do it. Get your nose out of your digital devices and take an action in the analog physical world. Wear a button. Put a bumper sticker on your car. Talk with people. Engage in the nuclear conversation. You don't have to be an expert. Just be a concerned citizen. Gather a few facts on one aspect of the problem and go. It was Chief Seattle of the Duwamish tribe back in the 1860s who spoke of the need to consider all decisions that we make as to their impact down to the seventh generation. That's approximately 150 years from now. So I invite you to do something today that will make an impact felt long after you're gone. Your descendants may not even know your name, but the fact that they are around and they are healthy will have them, by their very existence, being very grateful to you for your actions today. So in closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 7, 2012, day 330 since the Fukushima tragedy began. You can find us and links to previous programs by going to the nuclear, the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat group page or nuclearhotseat.com. We are also up on iTunes under the podcast section, and you can subscribe for free. So you never need miss a single podcast, and you can go back over our archives and download any that seem of interest to you. If you have a lead to a story or information to share, join with our growing army of on-the-ground reporters around the world. Send me a message on the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook page, and I will get back to you. This is Lee B. Halevi of Heart of Street Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, do not go back to sleep. I will see you again next week.